launch. I think we should launch. All right. <clears throat> the most deliberate throat clear ever. Ha-hum. That's so much better. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. To Super Duperstitious. The paranormal podcast about the science behind the strange. I'm Wyatt. I am Jake. And this is part two of our seventh Super Duperstitious special report in which we're tackling the phenomenon of superstitions themselves. Last week, we gave a history and etymology of the term superstitious, provided a handful of examples of both good and bad luck, be they charms, experiences, wards, and otherwise. This week, it's time for a little more of the science behind the strange as we unpack the cognitive acrobatics involved in superstitions, uh, trace the histories of some better known ones, and generally bore you to tears. <laughs> Buckle on up. But first, and for phantoms most... A plug. <laughs> Four Phantoms, surprise, surprise, a new brewery in western Massachusetts that combines elements. As we've said before, say it with me, everyone at home, D&D, &D, heavy metal, and... And beer. <laughs> to make... Beer. Good-ass beer. Not to be confused with good-ass beer, which is yes. a more complicated thing to make and hard to make good. It turns out it's true. Now, if they can pull that off, my goodness gracious... <laughs> But yes, we are supported by four fandoms. Well, we were. I don't know about <laughs> take now. Take it away, Jake. <laughs> and by it, I mean take the mic away from me. Okay. Uh, they want you to know that any and all uh, service industry workers or musicians and other artists that have suffered because of COVID-19 uh, can reach out at four fandoms beer. That's uh, the word for F-O-U-R fandoms beer at gmail.com to arrange pickup of free beer. The applied restrictions, of course, you will either need to live in Western Mass or travel there to get the stuff. But uh, if you can do that, then it is yours. Also, if you'd like to support Four Phantoms, but you're a little freaked out about going out to the shops, understandably, uh, please do consider supporting them by leaving a favorable or creative review at untapped.com. And uh, if you're feeling particularly generous, mention that we sent you along. That way they'll know that uh, their kind support is going to helping them get the attention that they're looking for and so deserving of. And they're not wasting their time with us. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think giggling does not keep the lights on. Nope. <laughs> so yeah, please check that out and uh, help them out. And we thank them for helping us out. Thank you guys very much. Now on... To superstition, we talked about the word and we gave examples last time, but what actually is it and why does it even happen to us? To uh, further recap last week's central take-home, when it comes to superstitions in general, one can think of the superstitious mind as one that takes the qualities of luck or chance subjectively rather than objectively. So the happenstance events that simply occur because isness are taken personally, interpreted as good or bad, and given a causal link to the experiencer as the consequence of that individual's particular luck. So yeah, that's, that's the basics of it, but things get pretty interesting when we look even more closelier and take on superstition <laughs> from some other directions. <laughs> so you want to go ahead and jump in with some of those? Yeah, let's see. We got superstition and psychology. So in this case, behavioral psychology, which is essentially the science of behavior that mm. assumes most every routine action is the result of conditioning. So you can think of good old even Ivan Pavlov or Ivan. Did he go by Ivan? I, I would say either Ivan or Ivan. Like Ivan, I think, is the more anglicized version, but 
Probably not that was even. My thinking as well. I don't think it's even. Even Pave Love, <laughs> with his famous canine conditioning experiments, uh, he was a behavioral psychologist. I won't get into much detail with him. Uh, if you don't know already, uh, you know, go outside with your computer and Google his name. <laughs> and then once you find it, go back inside and stay there. And stay inside and stay away from people. <laughs> um, but right, to quickly summarize his research, now that I feel weird, <laughs> ring a bell, feed dog treat, ring a bell again, no treat, dog drool. So in 1948, another behaviorist, B.F. Skinner, stands for boyfriend, published an article in the Journal of Experimental Psychology in which he described pigeons exhibiting what appeared to be superstitious behavior. Mm. These weren't just any pigeons. They were his study animals. He wasn't just walking around outside. (laughs) Oh, look at that pigeon. Uh, One pigeon was making turns in its cage. Another would swing its head in a pendulum motion, while others also displayed a variety of other behaviors. Skinner figured these behaviors were all done ritualistically in an attempt to receive food from a dispenser even though the dispenser had already been programmed to release food at set time intervals regardless of the pigeon's actions. Wow. Some pigeons responded up to 10,000 times without reinforcement when they had originally been conditioned on an intermittent reinforcement basis. Compared to other reinforcement schedules, such as fixed interval, which is basically when a desired response is rewarded only after a set amount of time has elapsed, These behaviors were also the most resistant to extinction. In this case, extinction refers to the loss of a conditioned response. So when it comes to behavioral conditioning, say you do the desired action and you get a treat every single time you get the action. You might entrain that action quickly, but the second you stop giving the treat, that action might go extinct or, or, or extinguish itself very rapidly as well. When it's intermittent like this, you never really know which time you know, pushing the button is going to give you the candy. So you will go on and on pushing the button. This is kind of what's behind like slot machine logic as well, where people get so hooked on that shit because they will get rewarded every so often, Mm. but certainly not every time. Anyway, Skinner thus believed that the pigeons were trying to influence their feeding schedule by performing these goofy actions of, you know, moving their heads around and dancing around their cages. And he proposed that something similar was going on underneath the superstitious behavior of humans. This is now called the partial reinforcement effect Mm. and describes the phenomenon which whenever an individual performs an action expecting a reinforcement and none seems forthcoming, it actually creates a sense of persistence within the individual, which is putting it in a more confusing way than I just did. (laughs) This strongly parallels superstitious behavior in humans, particularly if reinforcement, be it positive or negative, has come at certain times in the past as a result of a given action, but not every time. So again, just like the slot machines, as a result, an individual may feel that any time the action is repeated, that may be one of the times that reinforcement occurs. In other words, if I rub my lucky penny... It worked before, maybe this time again, I'll get a payout. And if it doesn't work, it's like, oh, I must have done it wrong, i got to try again. I must have done it wrong, or I shouldn't have, you know, knocked on the door four times like I did this morning. So, right, there you go. A recipe for good and bad luck charms and rituals. Nice. Jake, do you want to describe another aspect of superstitions? Yeah, it's like a little bit about the mechanism going into it. So, as we've described a few times now, people seem to believe superstitions influence events by changing the likelihood 
of currently possible outcomes rather than by creating new possible outcomes. So in sports, for example, a lucky ritual or object is used to increase the chance that an athlete will perform at the peak of their ability rather than suddenly increase their overall ability at the sport. It's not making them suddenly this superstar athlete. It's like, oh, this will help the thing you want to have happen that has happened before happen again. Right. Consequently, people are more likely to rely on supernatural assistance via lucky items and rituals when their goal is simply to perform well as opposed to those whose goal is to improve their skills and abilities or learn new things. Another example in sports you could think of, uh, you know, not wanting to change something you've been doing a certain way, so that's where you get playoff beards from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When a team in don't hockey or baseball, anymore. I feel like most often make it to the playoffs, they just, just okay, don't change anything, you know, don't wash your jersey, don't, don't <laughs> shave your face, right. like just keep everything the same in case any one thing screws it up. This is also like, uh, I'm thinking of baseball when there's when a pitcher is throwing a no-hitter game, mm. people will not like they'll like shun the pitcher they won't do they'll like they won't even talk about it they won't look they like everything gets really fucking weird it's like kind of cool to watch i mean it's in no small part because it's a absolute feat of athleticism but like it's funny to watch people just get (laughs) so weird and they like you know of course once the game's over they're like you're the best oh my god but like until that moment it's like don't breathe too much you want to throw them off like (laughs) So, so yeah, since superstitious stuff like that is not to just outright improve your skills, but to improve your luck with stuff you probably already have working for you anyway. So in other words, you probably don't need luck to just sit down and study, but no matter how well you know the material, you'll likely still want a bit of luck to help pass the test. A psychologist, Stuart Weiss, is that how you say his name? I do not know. Well, we're going to go with it. Stuart Weiss, I think, has pointed out that until about 2010, Quote, most researchers assumed superstitions were irrational and focused their attentions on discovering why people were superstitious. Weiss went on to describe studies that looked at the relationship between performance and superstitious rituals. Preliminary work has indicated that Hmm. such rituals can reduce stress and thereby improve performance. Weiss Hmm. said, quote, not because they are superstitious, but because they are rituals. So there is no real Hmm. magic, but there's a bit of calming magic in performing a ritualistic sequence before attempting a high-pressure activity. Any old ritual will do. Mm-hmm. End quote. So why do people attribute certain events to supernatural causes? It turns out this most often happens under one of two circumstances. Either the event seems less than likely to have occurred, or, I guess and or, the event is decidedly negative rather than positive. Yeah. So we can sort of walk through both of those in a little more detail. So, right, it may have seemed less than likely to have occurred. So, the more surprising the event, the more likely it is to evoke a supernatural explanation. Simple Mm -hmm. as that. This is believed to stem from the basic human desire to exert control over one's environment. So, when no natural cause can explain a situation, assigning an event to a superstitious or supernatural cause may give people some sense of control and a sense that they actually can predict what will happen in their environment. And the other side of it, decidedly negative this is called negative agency bias this gets back to the quality of feeling or quote-unquote being cursed Mm. i dove into this last week uh to draw on an example that may be particularly close to home for our new england listeners and dovetailing nicely with our sports uh, (laughs) accidental for the day (laughs) yes Boston Red Sox fans famously attributed the failure of their team to win the world series for 86 long years to what was called the Curse of the Bambino, which was a curse placed, of course, on the team for trading Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. 
back in the day. When the Red Sox finally won the World Series in 2004, however, the team's success was attributed to the team's skill and the rebuilding effort of the new owner and general manager, rather than to some other kind of superstitious cause. But they did believe that they broke the curse in doing that. Absolutely. Right. The curse was finally shattered through hard work and careful planning, but I'm sure other fans would have perhaps more fanciful further details as to what what elements went into shattering that curse. So there's the groundwork for the superstitious mind, and hopefully it should be clear for listeners that superstitions are simultaneously baseless and entirely human. It turns out we're sort of hardwired to seek explanations, even if we are sorely lacking in data that could actually provide a suitable explanation. (laughs) So often, ironically, I believe, it can be easier to justify or explain away a situation when we have less information because we can dip that much further into our own sensation of what we feel or believe should be true about that situation. Totally. It's, like you said, a very human reaction to do that kind of thing. And all this can have to do with magical thinking. Ooh, uh, yeah. That's so the belief that one's own thoughts, wishes, or desires can influence the external world. This is pretty common among young children. For example, a four-year-old might believe that a pony will appear at their house after enough wishing. Uh, Magical thinking generally fades, though, as children begin to master concepts of logic and cause and effect. But older children and many adults may deviate into magical thinking despite maintaining an otherwise reality-based mentality. Although magical thinking in adults can be a sign of Mm -hmm. of a mental health condition, uh, some cultures encourage magical thinking about certain things. For example, a tribal religion might encourage members to believe that carrying around a talisman or a fetish, it can also be called, uh, will cause it to rain. Uh, in an even more extreme example, some truly primitive groups might fear that getting your child vaccinated will give them autism. Uh, in other words, magical thinking is superstition as lifestyle. Despite any information offered to the contrary, you continue operating on the basis of your beliefs that your thoughts or actions will produce the desired outcome. And it may seem like it works. If you find that you happen to be Australian author Rhonda Byrne and you believe that positive thinking will help you make a whole lot of money and then you write a book telling people that, (laughs) you might just make a whole lot of money. But it's important (laughs) not to misattribute the cause of that effect. (laughs) So while this kind of activity can range from harmless for example, Santa Claus if sleeping, to truly horrible anti-vaxxers, there's another form of effectively magical thinking that begins to blur the line between superstition and science. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, are those damned placebo effects. Oh, placebo. Placebo. So most of our listeners have likely heard of the placebo effect, either on our show or elsewhere. And this describes the medical phenomenon in which your mind and its beliefs essentially stimulate very real effects in and on the body and its condition. We can better explain this through illustration. I get migraines frequently, (laughs) but enough that they are a persistent part of my life from one year to the next. Mm. And I think I speak for anyone and everyone who suffers migraine or who has ever just had a really horrible headache. All you really want while experiencing a migraine is some kind of relief from that pain. Like death. Like death. (laughs) The ultimate placebo effect. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Um, If you couldn't tell. Uh, So, well, a 2014 study by Slavenka Kamhansen and Professor Ted Kapchuk 
of Harvard-affiliated Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and their colleagues assessed how the labeling of drugs affected episodic migraine in 66 people. In other words, do our expectations about what we're putting into our bodies, our beliefs, have a measurable effect on our condition? This is how the study was set up. Participants were asked to take a pill for six different migraine episodes, which sounds horribly tiring and excruciatingly <laughs> painful. Uh, during these episodes, they were given either a placebo or a migraine medication called Maxalt. The labeling of the pills, however, was varied throughout the study. Pills were labeled either as a placebo, Maxalt, or either type. So it was basically a neutral uh, label. Participants were asked to first fly into the storm, allowing their migraine to rage untreated Ugh. for 30 minutes before rating pain intensity to get sort of a baseline, how shitty do you feel metric. Uh. They then took their assigned pill, waited two and a half hours, and then rated pain intensity again. Researchers found, amazingly, that the expectations set by the pill labeling, be that placebo, Maxell, or neutral, had a significant effect on the pain intensity reported, or specifically the change in pain intensity. Mm. Labeling truly mattered for both actual Maxalt, so the actual treatment, and the actual placebo, which is essentially a sugar pill doing nothing. Mm -hmm. The rating of relief was ordered based on labeling. Again, regardless as to whether the subjects were receiving the actual medication or the non-medicated pill, pills labeled as Maxalt were ranked highest, those labeled as neutral were in the middle, and those explicitly labeled placebo were lowest. Hmm. The effect was actually so strong that Maxalt, labeled as a placebo, was rated as providing about the same amount of relief as a placebo labeled as Maxalt, <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah. Um, Jake, would you like to tell us a little more on that? Story? Yeah. So as Cap Chuck says of these results, quote, the placebo effect is more than positive thinking, believing a treatment or procedure will work. It's about creating a stronger connection between the brain and body and how they work together. So it's pretty cool stuff, but not the entire story, of course. It's important to realize that, again, quoting, placebos may make you feel better, but they will not cure you. Mm -hmm. So how placebos actually work is still not quite understood, but it involves a complex neurobiological reaction that includes everything from increases in feel-good neurotransmitters like endorphins and dopamine oh, yeah. to, <laughs> to greater activity in certain brain regions linked to moods, emotional reactions, and self-awareness. All that can have therapeutic benefit. So, quote, the placebo effect is a way for your brain to tell the body what it needs to feel better. And that can actually make a huge difference in how your brain then leads your body in the process of real healing. Uh, but placebos are not all about releasing brain power. You also need the ritual of treatment. Mm -hmm. So some more captured quotage. Quote, when you look at these studies that compare drugs with placebos, there is the entire environmental and ritual factor at work. You have to go to a clinic at certain times and be examined by medical professionals in white coats. You receive mm -hmm. all kinds of exotic pills and undergo strange procedures. All this can have a profound effect on how the body perceives symptoms because you feel you're getting attention and care. Right. People associate the ritual of taking medicine as a positive healing effect. Even if they know it's not medicine, the action itself can stimulate the brain into thinking the body is being healed. That's so crazy. So in these coronavirus times, how can each of us give ourselves a placebo besides trying our hardest to just accept that the pills in that five-year-old bottle of Tylenol are actually the cure for, I don't know, loneliness? <laughs> 
sitting at home alone forever? (laughs) Well, simply maintaining a regular practice of self-help methods could be one way. Quoting Capchuk again, engaging in the ritual of healthy living, eating right, exercising, yoga, quality social time, meditating, or even avoiding yoga, probably provides, (laughs) that's not his line, probably provides some of the key ingredients of a placebo effect. The attention and emotional support you give yourself is often not something you can easily measure, but it can help you feel more comfortable in the world, and that can go a long way when it comes to healing. Very cool and very very good stuff to keep in mind now and always. So now with all this stuff in mind, all these various fact talkings in your brain, let's wrap up <laughs> by just unpacking a couple of the major superstitions that we either described or just mentioned in passing last week. Wyatt, do you want to start with a look at bad luck? Last week, I jumped around with a few bad luck concepts, especially leaning in on the quality of feeling or getting cursed. And today, instead, I think I'll talk a little bit about the history of a more common superstition or superstitious fear, which is the fear of the number 13, Mm. a.k.a. Periska videka triophobia. Oh my god. A word that is very much as long as it sounds. It's it's a couple of syllables shy of being the thing it's talking about. (laughs) Indeed. There should be a word that is the fear of saying Periska videka triophobia. (laughs) Jake, do you want to try saying it? You're going to like nail it. Uh, Periska videka triophobia? Yeah, look at you. God, just nailed it. Well, of course, apparently at least 10% of the U.S. population has a fear of the number 13. Mm. And even more specifically, the fear of Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. Um, and this dark superstition winds up costing more than $800 million wow. in financial losses annually, or so saith history.com, which <laughs> is a spurious site now because of ancient <laughs> aliens and such. Uh But the logic behind it is sound. People avoid marrying, traveling, or even working on dates or in locations associated with this number, which annually can collectively compound into quite a bit of money. Mm. Although, let's be real, the U.S. dollar is probably worth about five Canadian cents now. (laughs) Um, According to the Stress Management Center and Phobia Institute in Asheville, or SMECFI, or SMECPI, just kidding, North Carolina, more than 80% of high-rise buildings in the United States do not have a 13th floor. And the vast majority of hotels, hospitals, and airports avoid using the number for rooms and gates as well. But what's so unlucky about the number 13, and how did this numerical superstition get started? Because so many hotels don't have a 13th floor, I like to imagine that there is an actual level there, but the elevators don't actually stop there. And oh, it's just this horrible nether floor. Oh, yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> Do you have maybe like three or four more pretty long-form jokes about that? Because we're making such a ridiculous time right now. <laughs> I don't, but I'm specifically in my mind, I'm imagining the uh, Tower of Terror ride at uh, Disney. I don't know if that is. One suggestion has Disney, its roots in mathematics. What are you talking about? I know you don't believe it exists, but it does. Disney. Mm-hmm. You're saying it's a whole land. I was saying it's a whole world, Wyatt. Well, which one is it? You keep telling me it's one and then it's the other. Would you believe it's both? What? <laughs> that cannot be the same thing. It's not. One sucks and the other one's great. Which one? Which one's bad? Uh, Disneyland. No, it's not. I mean, Anaheim. It's Anaheim, I believe. 
I guess we could just keep going. Uh, no, let's do maybe five more of those. <laughs> so, talking about the number 13, <laughs> in case anyone forgot. One suggestion of its origin is that it has its roots in mathematics. The number 12 was often considered a perfect number in the mm-hmm. ancient world. The ancient Sumerians developed a numeral system. The system. <laughs> The ancient Sumerians developed a numeral system based on the use of 12 that is still used for measuring time today. Most calendars, if you haven't noticed, have 12 months. <laughs> a single day is comprised of 12 two-hour two hour days. <laughs> oh, my God. A single day is comprised of... <laughs> okay. Two 12-hour half days... And on we go. Mm-hmm. Following so closely on the heels of a perfect number, some argue 13 was sure to be found lacking, unusual, and, dare I say it, unlucky. I like that it's lacking, but it's actually more. It's true. <laughs> it's even more perfect than perfect. The sphere of the unknown would seem to play into two other popular theories for the number's unlucky connotation both of which revolve around the appearance of a 13th guest at two ancient events in the Bible, or the Bible. Judas, eyes carry it, the 13th guest to arrive at the final supper, is the person who betrays the Jesus. And this quality of a 13th guest messing things up at a dinner even extends into ancient Norse lore, in which, as probably all of our listeners know because you're all nerds, Loki shows up and causes evil and turmoil to be introduced to the world in an otherwise balanced dinner party of 12 gods. (laughs) And of course, at an international scale, fears surrounding the number 13 are a primarily Western construct. Some cultures, including the ancient Egyptians, actually considered the number lucky, while others have fixated on other numbers as values of fear. For example... There is a very, very widespread fear of the number four, much more simply referred to as tetraphobia. Thank Mm. God everyone can say that one. (laughs) In much of East and Southeast Asia, this is due to the phonetics of the word itself, which in the Chinese language and Chinese influenced linguistic subgroups sounds very much like the word death, Mm. obviously in those languages. So not much of a stretch to imagine wanting to avoid and eventually fear an explicitly death quantity of really anything. (laughs) Yes. I think that one makes a lot more sense than Fury 13. Yeah. Especially, look at like bakeries and it's a great number. Exactly. <laughs> they See now, if we just referred to it as a baker's dozen of things, uh-huh. every hotel would have a baker's dozen of floors. Come <laughs> yeah. on. That's the cutest number of floors you could possibly have. Especially trying to refer to it as the baker's dozenth floor. I'm sorry, you're on the BD floor. <laughs> anyway, that's all I got, Jake. You take it away. No problem. So, yeah, as far as the good luck side of things, I last week talked about salt. Pretty common thing in a lot of cultures worldwide. Pretty neat. Um, so, I'm going to break it down this week. First, I'll refer to a Madeline Deste. I don't know how you say your last name. Deste or Deste article. She's from Australia. Deste. Deste? Um, um, I don't know. Yeah. She is a contributor to FolkloreThursday.com, and here's an article of hers found there. Uh, I'm going to just use a bit of it, but it's um, worth reading the whole thing. It's not very long, but it's good. She says, quote, while today we can buy salt by the sack load, salt was once a valuable commodity. Anyone recklessly spilling salt was wasteful and inviting future loss. 
Over the millennia, salt has been associated with purity, fertility, sexual desire, and preservation, and in turn inspired many superstitious ties. So salt has generally been Hmm. uh, seen as a good and important thing, and thus can have good luck connotations on its own. Meanwhile, fucking with it can mean bad luck. Language. (laughs) Not good luck. Even worse. (laughs) Uh, Quote, a guest spilling salt was considered rude and seen as refusing hospitality, as featured in the German proverb, whoever spills salt arouses enmity. Uh, Spilled salt is also an omen for broken friendships, as every grain of salt will turn into a tear. And then spilled Mm -hmm. salt at a dinner is an omen of family dispute, and some say it is not the person who spills the salt, but the person closest to the spill who receives the bad luck. Whoa. And then uh, one well-known representation of spilled salt in a coming betrayal comes in Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, where Judas is Cariot, <laughs> is portrayed knocking over the salt teller. Nice. Some more neat examples of the superstitions is associated with salt. Um, she gives mm-hmm. a whole host of cool instances of salt used in various world religions, but I'm going to kind of skip over that just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. originally just for time's sake, but now just because I don't have it written in here. Um, I'll link <laughs> to the full article. I recommend reading it. It's cool. She says, cures were developed to counteract the bad luck, most commonly uh, tossing spilled salt over your left shoulder. The salt is thrown on the left because this is where the devil lives. Salt was considered godly, and in comparison, the devil loveth no salt in his meat. Oh, my. Yes, it was used in many cultures to guard against evil spirits because evil cannot abide salt. Uh, The Scots protected their butter churns from witches with a ring of salt or tossed salt into the sea to blind the fairies, which, I mean, I think throwing salt into the sea is helpful. Redundant. Yeah. (laughs) I will say salt... (laughs) The superstition around salt is a strong one in my uh, childhood home. Yeah? Specifically through my mom. She has everyone chucking just tons of salt over that left shoulder. <laughs> any any slight spillage instantly getting thrown. If you resist, even in the most modest form of protest, she will volunteer herself to throw some salt over your shoulder <laughs> <Wow>. for you. <laughs> Which might sound wild to folks who are unfamiliar with the superstition, but it is kind of cute and it's kind of (laughs) nice to just have someone be like, hey, let me get that for you, buddy. Yes. Satan himself is waiting. I don't think there's even any real, like, connotation outside the fact that it's bad luck. You know what I mean? It's not even like, oh, I have to blind the devils. It's like, it's bad luck to not do it, so just do it. It's that kind of thing. Exactly. And then it even extends into, like, stuff today, people just taking this thing with salt and running with it. You have Himalayan salt lamps now. Oh, yeah. Which they're supposed to uh, balance. They're better for you. Yeah, they're, they must, they're supposed to uh, put, like, good ions into the air and balance electromagnetic radiation and cleanse spaces and stuff like that. I tell you what you do with those lamps, though. Mm-hmm. Take the light bulb out. Uh-huh. Get the wire out of there. Get basically everything that is the lamp part away. <laughs> Very far away. You get it so far away. You go back to your house. Kitchen, oven, about 400 stick salmon inside of the lamp put the whole thing in the oven <laughs> throw it on the floor shatter eat fish so good <laughs> off the floor <laughs> this is a recipe can be found on wyatt's blog and we will link to it <laughs> i now have to make this <laughs> uh but as far as yeah, the salt lamp thing we had a co-worker um at unh who had a salt lamp on her desk and she didn't like really buy into the stuff but she would like kind of tongue-in-cheek tell us all about the benefits that it was bringing to her desk and we just like told her it was bullshit so she as a result came through and bought a salt lamp for 
every she was uh, in charge of the writers part of the marketing department she gave one to every single one of the people she worked with whoa that's a lot of budget holy shit it was only like four or five salt lamps but still okay but uh still very cute we still uh, lauren still has hers we have it as like a nightlight thing in our bathroom before we get up to pee at night do you feel like especially ionized yes ionized when you're in there yeah (laughs) so tracy i'm sure you're not listening to this but thank you yeah salt so anyway uh Quoting from the article, humans have had a long history with salt, and its many practical applications for, for preserving and purifying have elevated salt into the realm of an almost magical substance. Mm-hmm. While we no longer highly value salt as a commodity, the memory of the use of salt to prevent evil still lingers in our culture today. Mm-hmm. So in short, she's saying salt was something so good and important that it took on supernatural qualities over time that were then elaborated to mean that salt could literally fight evil. But what the hell is so good about salt? Mm-hmm. So after this, I have some salt history straight from uh, Morton's Salt website. Well, they're so, going to give you the good stuff. Oh, yeah. Not the bad stuff. They're going to cover up all the dark blood salt stories. <laughs> right. <laughs> Conflict salt. Um, I just have a few little chunks uh, I pulled out of the article they have on that. So one is quote says, the first written reference to salt is found in the Book of Job. Recorded about uh, 2250 BC. There are 31 other references to salt in the Bible, the most familiar probably being the story of Lot's wife, who was turned into a pillar of salt when she disobeyed the angels and looked back at the wicked city of Sodom. Lot famously went back, licked her neck, and went, mm, that shit's good. <laughs> and then went off and had uh, sex with his daughters. Thousands of years ago, animals created <laughs> salt licks, and men followed, seeking game and salt. Their trails became roads, and beside the roads, settlements grew. These settlements became cities and nations. Ancient Britons carried their crude salt by pack train from Cheshire to southern England, where they often were forced to delay their journey till the high tides of the Thames subsided. A village known as Damn Westminster. The salty water. Mm-hmm. A village known as Westminster grew up there, and Westminster became London. So just be- various stuff to do with salt, transportation, and gathering ended up really dictating the geography of where major cities are now. Please, please, penis-tating. Cock-tating. Cock-tating. Salt has greatly influenced the political and economic history of the world. Uh, he is not worth his salt, as a common expression. It originated in ancient Greece, where salt was traded for slaves. Roman soldiers were paid salt money, salarium argentum, from which we mm-hmm, take our mm-hmm. English word salary. Mm-hmm. So fun thing about that, the word salary coming from uh, salarium argentum is true, but the idea that Roman legions were actually paid in salt apparently is like apocryphal at best, so we really don't know. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it didn't make sense. That I was always wondering about that. I'm like, really? That's always how it was described. Like, that's, that is the term they use, but we don't know right. why, because that wasn't actually how they were paid. Pretty sure they're just paid in denarii. Uh, the article goes on to reiterate some of the superstitions we've already they covered. They paid in the bank. Yes. Go on. Uh, it goes on to reiterate some of the superstitions we've already covered, but I do want to include this one part. Uh, mm-hmm. Quote, the French throw a little spilled salt behind them in order to hit the devil in the eye to temporarily mm. prevent further mischief. In the United States, some people not only toss a pinch of spilled salt over the left shoulder, but crawl mm-hmm. under the table and come out the opposite side. Are you kidding me? So to our non-American listeners, I do want to clarify on this. This is incredibly common 
and definitely not the only time I have ever heard this anywhere. Exactly. And I, my saying, are you kidding me, is me just reacting to that this is even a thing to have to bring up right. at all. Yeah. So if you have dinner in the United States, you can expect people to crawl around under the table five, six times before the end of the meal, depending on how many people are present. We actually have, you'll notice any furniture, specifically tables, really, that you get from American companies, Ikea, Spears, all these things, <laughs> they have what is called essentially a salt pass or salt way where the table kind of folds out a little bit so people can crawl that much more quickly, that much more easily from one side to the other. Exactly. Just some, some, <laughs> some cultural stuff for folks to know. I know. Such a boring detail. <laughs> Uh, to fully wrap up on salt, we now know the superstitions and at least historically why they started. Salt was important, so we elevated its status, and that elevation got pretty exaggerated. But why was salt even important to begin with? We've just said, oh, you know, it's it's gotten to this point because people really valued it. But why did they ever value it? For that, we can happily return to and finish with our all pal science. Mm. So just in general, if you're talking about, like they mentioned the idea of hunter gatherers following animals to salt lakes and stuff so they could hunt the animals, but also needing the salt as well. Salt is just a really critical part of uh, basic biology and specifically sodium. It's sodium chloride mm. uh, and the sodium ions are really helpful for a lot of stuff. So, Ions in general are really good for just different cellular function. That's a lot of the reason why plants need that. They don't need it as much as animals do, though. Animals have these things called brains, and uh, brains need a lot of different sodium stuff to do just general neural functional things, and that's mm-hmm. just a huge reason why we need salt in our diet. I can't remember what the actual numbers are. It's like 100 to 200 milligrams or so a day is what we're required to have, and uh, so there's a reason why you sometimes crave salty things it's anytime you're craving anything it's because your body feels that it needs that thing we Mm -hmm. evolved to have a taste for certain stuff because those things at least in the distant past when we didn't have that stuff in abundance were things that were really helpful to us so sweet things are Mm. really great to us because sugar is a source of fast energy quickly readily available energy that can get you going for a little while and so if you were to eat a berry or something it tastes good because it (laughs) ends up being helpful to you Salt similarly evolved to taste good to us because it's a thing that we also often need. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, people couldn't necessarily find enough salt just around. And when they could find it, they would like really make sure to get as much as they could. A lot of just the gathering, mining, distribution of salt became a major reason why civilization was able to kind of take hold. And, uh, yeah, that is how it became so important to begin with. It's just a basic biological necessity. It's so fascinating. That you go from a thing that you need enough of to survive to, hey, this will protect me from ghosts. <laughs> a very long and winding path, but <laughs> follows a lot of pretty logical turns just based on how we work. And that right. is a, just a pretty fun, pretty good microcosm of just the general concept of superstitions in general. Yes, indeed. We have taken you from super duperstitiousness to science. Mm-hmm. And I think the show is over. I think, yeah, we, we thought it was over like three episodes ago, but now this time for sure. We've kind of hit the mark and we're done. I think we are. Um, so we'll, we'll be back next week. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Please Thank you very do, much. If you listen on Apple Podcasts in particular, uh, rate and review. That helps us in a big way. 
certainly any podcatcher you have, but that is the one where it seems to really most affect traffic and the ability for other people to find us. So if you want to, that would be super cool. We love you for it. We normally don't read reviews on the show because we feel that it's gauche, but we're going to read one right now because I think it's really fun. You know what? Gauche for it, Jake. (laughs) Why you haven't heard this one yet, so I'm going to read it to you. I have not. This one is from Liz. uh, Liz Newt says, one of my favorite shows. I thought that was the whole review. No, that's the that's the subject line for the review. Oh, wow. The review begins, is good. Thumbs up emoji. <laughs> <laughs> the, per- the perfect blend of smart and funny. Jake and Wyatt are awesome. Super Duper wow. keeps me entertained as well as learning new things about the science of the supernatural and science in general. If you find yourself bored or frustrated with other podcasts, this is the one for you. Boom. The episodes are funny and extremely well-researched and sourced. The episode notes with links to pictures, videos, and articles are something I want from all podcasts now. Oof, thanks and keep standards. up the good work, guys. And thank you for seeing us, Liz. Gee yes. whiz. <laughs> High time someone finally fucking recognized quality. <laughs> God. I, actually, I specifically wanted to read this review, not only because it's nice, but because it's the first time that I've seen any evidence that anyone actually follows the links we post at the end of the, all of <laughs> <Yeah>. our episodes. <laughs> And I just feel so validated, 103 episodes in, to know that it helped at least one person. It is true, Liz. Because, yeah. Keep rocking. Uh-huh. Thank you so much for your review. That's really sweet. Yeah. And, yeah, if you want to support the show, a review is a great way to do that. If you really want to support the show, Patreon is an even better way to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't need your kind words. We want your money. <laughs> um, What the hell am I even saying? Oh, yeah, the Patreon thing. Yes. I know times are tight. We're all kind of hunkered down, not really sure of future income. But if you're feeling a little generous, if you've been liking the show, if you want some perks and goodies to go with it, and just to participate in a financial way, patreon.com slash super duperstitious. I know my laid off ass would thank you. Yeah, Jake is super laid off. I'm super a grad student. But Jake, especially focus on his narrative. He's laid off. <laughs> From two jobs. From two jobs. He's now giving foot rubs for pay <laughs> on the street corner. With proper PPE, don't worry. With proper PPE, exactly. But yeah, no, anyway, this is going on way too long, and uh, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just sorry. And so am I. And uh, with that, bye. get out of your hair, bye. <laughs> Maybe that's good? Is that done? I think it's done. I think we're done. All right. And stop.